Dzień dobry, knuckleheads of Backwards Radio Show. This is a message for my former uh, work colleague, Mr. Neil Hlavati. I'm hearing a message that has brought me much sadness. A little birdie telling me that Coach Neil did not offer proper congratulation to Polish friend for Liverpool winning English Premiership. No vodka, no dill pickle, nothing. Please pass along my request to fix this before it become problem. Davidzenia. Welcome back to another episode of Forwards Backwards, not from the corner of Glenway and Monroe, and not from the Gimme Some Truth Studios. This week we talk uh, USL's return with Ryan Madden and recap the T-E-L-E-T-H-O-N with Kyle Carr as a cover for babbling about Liverpool and discuss our upcoming hiatus. Uh, Dan, before we we go into all of that, I do want to ask you, uh, and as always, I'm joined by Dan Fallon, who is the Stadler to my Waldorf. Dan is Sofameister. Your new favorite German word. What's Sofameister? <laughs> you didn't hear about this? So Sofameister, and, and Kyle, I think you'll appreciate this as well. Uh, Sofameister is the German term for winning the championship while watching the game from your couch. <laughs> as Liverpool well, did I, last Thursday. I, well, I need, what is uh, watching the championship from your outdoor porch? <laughs> Porchmeister? Porchmeister, yeah. I'm going to say, for me, it was watching it from your work desk, so Dustmeister. <laughs> Dustmeister, uh, you know, uh, slack, slacking at workmeister. I think that's what they call that. Uh, that those, German, those Germans with their words for everything. Yeah, uh, you just, you can take all of the words and you combine them into one, and you've got yeah. it. So uh, we're going to talk about the, the you know, uh, Liverpool title a little bit later, but uh, uh, I want to thank Kyle Carr for all of his work on hosting the te- telethon. And thanks, Kyle, for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. And this is a good time. Yeah. And then we're also going to jump to uh, an interview that we pre-recorded with uh, uh, Ryan Madden here. So let's let's go to that. First guest tonight, we have Ryan Madden, who is one of about 52 vice presidents at UL. In this case, he is the uh, vice president of communications. Uh, just joined up with USL about, what, a year ago, Ryan? Is that right? A little over two years ago, but yeah, it's, um, time has flown by. Yeah, and prior to that, you were with the Colorado Rap- Rapids and uh, CONCACAF, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was also a quick stop in the U.S. Olympic Committee setup, but um, but yeah, I'm a I'm a soccer lifer, if you will. <laughs> Fantastic, and uh, you know, uh, in in doing communications with CONCACAF, uh, probably gave you a lot of experience in. Uh, handling challenging situations, I would imagine. I'll, I was just starting out my career and all I was doing was uh, writing stories for the website. So I, uh, I, didn't have to, I didn't have to do any of the challenging stuff. Okay, you was never... Was quota on how many had to be about Chuck Blazer? <laughs> <laughs> it was... Uh, <laughs> I, was writing, I was writing four stories a day during major tournaments. So I was, uh, I was covering oh. the World Cup and the Women's World Cup. Um, it was contract work. It was... Uh, it wasn't as serious uh, as it, as it may have been. So you never met Chuck Blazer's cats, is what you're telling us. 
You know, you are only the 720 person <laughs> to ask me that exact same question. And no, I never met the cat. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we're, we have a very simple, you know, very simple. Uh, our, our official statistician was once on a, a, a cruise in Australia with uh, a lawyer who uh, actually worked with... Uh, Chuck Blazer somehow, and that was all he wanted to ask about. So we're, we're really reflecting our listeners' desires when we ask that, that question about the cat. I appreciate it. You guys are men of the people. I get it. <laughs> Good. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, with the Rapids as well, was that a similar sort of role or, or what, you know, came about there? And what did you gather from that that brought you to USL? That was um, probably the most influential professional experience of, of my life to date. Um, I walked in. It was my first time working in, in uh, a real professional soccer environment. And um, Tim Howard, who, who now is the, the part owner and, and goalkeeper in, uh, in Memphis, was the goalkeeper at the Rapids at the time. And they were just um, undergoing a, a leadership change. So it was this really not turbulent, but it was this very sort of inflection point in the organization's history. And, and to be there in that moment, I just learned a lot of lessons. It was humbling experience at first. Um, and I, I gained some invaluable experience and, um, we did some good things, made some mistakes, but, um, was, it was that experience that, that really prepared me, uh, to come and take this job with USL in the last, the last two years of, um, have been the highlight of my career being in this league and seeing the way, that it's grown and everyone in American soccer talks about growth, right? It's like the most overused word that we use when we living in living and working and cheering in this space. But the growth of USL is um, it's, 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 it challenges you to, to keep up with it because you have to grow professionally at that same rate. Um, and it's just been a, a wonderful experience and my family likes living in Florida. So uh, all is well. So Ryan, you, you, you know, you mentioned you joined two years ago, that would have been kind of right as USL League One was launching. Um, so what was your kind of role alongside that and, you know, kind of, and then maybe go from there about, you know, what do you think went well in the first season? Yeah. So when I, when I first got to the league, um, it was, we were really in like, execution mode. Um, the, the infrastructure had been laid before I arrived. Um, Steven Short and, and some, some others here at the league office did a, did a lot of the, the groundwork on that. Um, and we were launching with, with 10 teams and it was a, it was a really unique experience, I think, because look, this past year went really well on the field, but I, but I think the, the most impact that we had was, was off of it. Um, and we got to see from nothing a genuinely unique supporters culture emerge. And that, that is, that's, that's special, you know, like you don't get to be a part of, of something um, from the beginning like that very often, you know, looking at, at what league one is, you know, hyper-local grassroots um, it's its own league and it's its own culture and it's different than the championship and it's different than MLS. And um, that's really cool and, and really fulfilling to see. And I think each and every club in League One has played a role in that. But the extent to which the club you guys support, Ford Madison, is now this nationally um, and internationally known community-based club, it's really accelerated the acknowledgement and the awareness of, of that supporters culture. So um, 
I'm like everyone else, to be honest. I'm just a huge fan of, of what the club is doing, of Connor, of Kuba, and, and the rest of the team there. It's, um, yeah. it's completely different. And to be different takes talent and it takes courage and, and we're all better for it. Yeah. One thing that I think definitely went wrong uh, last year and is important to us because it was, you know, it's important to the, the finances of the club and, and also, you know, they were on our way to becoming uh, a rival was Lansing and what happened in Lansing. And I'm curious as to what, um, went wrong and what you guys have learned from that experience in terms of preventing that from happening again, because I think, you know, having a, an owner in one year and pulling out and, you know, is not a good look for the league and not great for what I think was the big selling point of USL league one versus some of the other leagues, which was sort of financial stability of, of the ownerships and the, and the teams. I can't speak to, to every aspect of it because I wasn't in inside those four walls in that organization. So, so I don't know the rationale behind every decision that was made. Um, but I think you're right. You know, it, the goal of this organization as a whole is to bring sustainable community-based clubs and that wasn't sustainable. So I, I don't think, I think it's a really fair question and, and it's fair of you to, to raise it as a point. And we, we can't have many of those. Um, and, and, and when, when clubs come into communities, supporters need to know that those clubs are going to be there for a long time and, um, that it means something to walk through those gates and that you can take your kids there and your kids can hopefully take their kids to that game. And and you have to build something that's, that's lasting. So, um, while maybe it would be unfair, um, to Lansing to sit here and, and dissect, every single area that maybe didn't go the way that they would have liked. I think it's, it's, it's honest and it's, it's real to say that we learned a lot of lessons from that. And we're, um, it's really unfortunate that we don't have Lansing Ignite with us anymore, but um, we're a better organization for having learned the lessons and, and, and gone through it. We're just glad because their podcast had get canceled and it was, uh, it was the number one rated third division soccer podcast in the upper Midwest. So uh, it, it cleared the space for Keith and I to take that mantle. Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're only the, fifth, we're only the, the fifth most popular podcast about forward Madison, um, including one that's no longer in existence. So we need all the help that we can get. Um, we're really trying to, to make the way up, you know, that way. Uh, so that's what, so Keith, that's all those books are behind you. It's, um, it's pod, how to podcast, how to yeah, <laughs> idiots guide to podcasting. Uh, and Dan, Dan will tell you, it's really easy, even though it's unclear what, what Dan actually does. Uh, okay. So it's really easy for Dan. He's uh, still on the, how do former academics become top podcasters book? That's <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> the problem is, uh, you know, my, my constant references to, uh, you know, Camus and Sartre, sort of weigh the podcast down. They don't yeah. really yeah. move us along. So I've, I've heard that about this podcast. It can be a bit dense at times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's more existential than most. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Ryan, uh, follow-up question a little bit about that. So in terms of expansion and, and growth, um, what can you kind of tell us about how, what the league's looking at? Obviously, we'll get into a little bit more about COVID and pandemic and that kind of stuff. And I'm yeah. sure that's kind of changed some people's timelines. Um, but, you know, what are some goals for the league in terms of, you know, adding teams in the future? Yeah, I mean, look, the, it, it's to a larger point that I think about, you know, what, how can we get better as a league? And um, there's, there's not really any specific part of 
League One that is a finished product. But I think if you were going to identify one area that we can get better at in the short term and we can get better quickly is simply the number of strong independent clubs expansion. Um, and that's something we're working every single day on. So I can tell you today, like as of this evening, um, we're in conversations with 50 communities across the country, um, all of whom, for the most part, have come to our organization uh, and said that they have an appetite for League One soccer in their community. We're in negotiations with 15 of those clubs, and we have, um, I think, three or more expansion announcements to come before the end of the year. So look, the growth trajectory of League One is is going to be explosive in, in the next couple of years. And I think about who we might be as a league by the time the, the 2026 World Cup rolls around, and it's, it's really exciting. Right. Related to that, um, one of the things that we're fairly excited about is the presence of the the team in Fort Wayne um, with, with DeMarcus Beasley yeah. and the ownership, which is you know, going to be excellent on a, a number of fronts. Um, and I think one of the things that helps the, the sustainability of, of a club like Madison is getting more teams in the local area that, you know, we can bus to, as opposed to fly to, um, are there is sort of working in geographic pods an emphasis of this expansion? Is it, or is it just, we're expanding where we can get clubs? It's not just wherever we can get clubs. Um, and if there's an opportunity for, you know, quote unquote, regional rivalries, that's, that's really important because it's important for local supporters culture and, and the growth of it to know that um, you don't have to jump on a flight to go and have an away day, right? It'd be nice to get on a bus or to be able to, um, you know, jump in a car and, and go see a match. So in the a Metro Ford micro Kia, uh, Metro Ford uh, Kia micro bus, right, Dan? Yes, and our, our our other guests waiting in the wings. And we we both spent upwards of forty hours <laughs> in the microbus. <laughs> I still think I'm in the microbus some days. Yeah, it looks like it may have given Kyle a headache. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but but look, we're um, on the expansion front. I mean, we want to we want to give people the opportunity to to have away days, but. the most important thing when it comes to expansion, I think you guys can can vouch for this because you've seen it in Madison is you need strong, committed local ownership. You need a good venue to play and you got to have talented people at the organization that are willing to create something that doesn't look like everyone else and doesn't feel like everyone else. And I think if you can get, if you can get those three ingredients um, and put them into the pot, you're going to, you're going to be okay. And that's, that's, that's our focus. And then you add into that some other sort of ancillary um, considerations like uh, a local appetite for professional soccer. And you can use different metrics, whether that's youth soccer participation or, you know, other um, ways of sort of quantifying those things. They all, they all come together and they paint a picture for you on whether or not a specific community is a good candidate for a league one club. Um, But it's the strong local ownership groups. um, It's, it's, it's soccer venues that, that make sense for clubs and help with, the question you asked before, Keith, about sustainability um, and clubs' ability to last the test of time, that's a big part of that, right? Playing in soccer-specific venues. Um, and, and then it's the, the, the ability to um, attract talent and who can, who can give you sort of a, a unique offering amongst a lot of different soccer organizations throughout the United States. So um, that's what we're looking for. And then if, if we can 
if we can achieve that and also bring regional rivalries to clubs, then that's, that's icing on the cake. Um, so, one, one, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, one, one thing, and I think um, we'll turn to our resident epidemiologist, Dan, af, after this. Um, one thing, you know, that um, uh, that we've talked about that's great about, you know, DeMarcus Beasley joining in the ownership group is it starts to diversify the, the ownership groups yeah. um, and will hopefully pave the way for uh, a more, you know, diverse supporters culture, more diverse USL League One. And one of the things that we're interested in, you know, it's very easy for leagues to, to pay lip service to a lot of these things, teams to pay lip service. What sort of concrete steps have uh, USL taken to, um, you know, improve minority hiring at the coaching level, helping kind of overcome some of the, the barriers to getting, you know, there's a, there are a lot of African-American players in the league. Um, you know, what sort of steps have they taken to maybe get them involved in the next steps? Are there, obviously there are conversations happening, but when can we start to see concrete, uh, you know, examples of, of things that you guys are doing? Uh, it's the most important thing you and I could discuss. Um, look, I think it, the best place to start is that, you know, on a deeply personal level, but also speaking on behalf of the organization, you know, we fully support um, the Black Lives Matter movement and and um, stand with anyone who's experienced racism, oppression, or societal injustice throughout the course of their life. We want to do everything we can um, to be an agent of positive change in this space. Now, I agree with you that the typical response from corporate America is is um, it falls flat and it, it doesn't do enough, and that's that's not that's not what we're trying to accomplish here. I think from the very beginning, we realized that this was a topic that we needed to do more listening than talking to start with. Um, so we have spent a, a tremendous amount of time um, speaking with and learning from those athletes within our and coaches and, and executives within our ecosystem who have experienced those things, racism and oppression firsthand told us about their experience and then have given us feedback on what we can do better as an organization to help support them. And there's a lot of incredible stories. You know, I think the first, the first thing we did was turn over our platforms to, to athletes themselves to be able to tell their stories. You know, uh, Charlotte defender Hugh Roberts wrote this, I think really powerful essay for our website titled justice and, and um, five or six other athletes and coaches um, contributed to the website as well, telling their stories, firsthand experiences on these things. So that was, that was one small, very, albeit admittedly very small step. Um, we gave people, we gave our staff the opportunity to take um, Juneteenth off to, to educate themselves, to honor it, and to reflect. Um, we are also finding some other ways to support the movement. We've, we've heard from players that they want to do something the opening weekend to acknowledge um, the movement as a whole, a little bit similar to what you've probably seen in some of the other leagues around the world. And it's, it's, it's been a player driven, um, a player driven initiative. So I, I don't, it's not my news to break. They'll, they'll announce it, but we have some, some cool stuff coming down the pipe on that. And then I think, those are, those are first steps. And then we got to start talking about um, what are we doing that's more substantive than that? Because if, when we reflect back on USL's involvement in, in the societal movement, one, two, three years down the road, it can't just have been some website stories and, and some, some awareness campaigns. There's got to be some, 
some legs behind it. Um, we're looking, I think, interestingly at what New Mexico United did, which was very great, um, their diversity um, fellowship inclusion program, um, and maybe seeing if there's a way to, to look at that on a league-wide level. We've talked with um, some some African-American head coaches around the league, including um, uh, some, some players as well, like Tim Howard, about starting a, um, like a, a coalition or a committee that can come together on a regular basis and help guide and provide recommendations to USL on some substantive ways that we can support Black Lives Matter um, going forward. Just in summary, I guess, we're going to be here in this, in this space for a while. Um, it's not just a statement and then move on business as usual. We're, we're committed to this cause. Um, and we're taking the, the first few small steps, I think, as an organization to, to acknowledge and to, and to support it. Um, but over the next year, two, three years, I think is when you're really going to see um, some more substantive things come down the pipe. Because Keith, you make a good point from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, there's no one in American soccer who's doing good enough or well enough right now. We all have to do better in this space. So um, it's just figuring out uh, exactly what that looks like from, a, from an execution standpoint, but I'm, I'm confident that, that we're going to do things that are gonna make people proud over the next year or two. Thanks, Ryan. So um, pivoting to the return to the field, um, which uh, you know becomes a little cha- more challenging every day as the um, the news in the United States kind of gets worse and worse in terms of positive COVID cases. Um, but why don't you give us just a quick update? I know the USL Championships a little bit farther ahead. People can can read about that and listen to other shitty podcasts uh, to find out about that. But in terms of uh, USL League One, why don't you just kind of give us an idea of where things stand? I know there's some there's some dates out there, but um, no kind of concrete plans that have been released yet. Yeah, so um, I think as you probably know, the, the championship is set to kick off on the 11th, and, and League One is set to kick off on on the 18th. And um, I think the most important part of that is that from from the day that we announced our temporary suspension on the 12th of, of March, I guess we immediately from that day we've been in this in this perpetual state of health and wellness analysis and. The first part of that was identifying areas of the analysis that that we didn't have a a certain degree of expertise. So we needed to bring in medical experts um, who who were uh, sort of on the cutting edge of this and could give us real tangible medical guidance. So we brought in um, doctors from uh, Northwestern University and the University of Tennessee. And then we also relied heavily on U.S. soccer's chief medical officer. And so for, for two and a half months... Um, those three public health experts, along with a contingent of medical, operational, and legal um, representatives from um, both within the USL, but also Major League Soccer and, and WSL, all came together in different task forces and committees and created a 51-page um, document that is essentially the league's return to play health and wellness protocols. Um, it's robust. We're confident in them. It focuses on a couple of different areas that are, are relatively intuitive, but um, testing, screening, sanitization, and um, PPE, all of which um, we're doing. Uh, there's some really strict protocols in place to make sure that um, when, as we return to play, we're doing it safely because no one, no one was under any illusion here. When we, when we made the decision to return to play, we did so with clear eyes, knowing that um, if we were going to come back in our own communities and in our own venues, there were going to be varying 
levels of um, ability for teams to host matches based on their local and state health authority guidelines, right? And the reality is different communities have been impacted in different ways by COVID-19. So there was never going to be uniformity across all championship and league one communities. And people accepted that going in. Um, some teams might have to play more road matches up front. There's the idea of unbalanced scheduling where some teams just play on the road. So other teams play more of their matches at home. So there's a lot, there's a lot that's gone into this. Um, and over the last two and a half months, we've been fortunate to have some guidance coming from, from really smart, intelligent people, people with far higher IQ scores than I have. Um, and, and they've determined that, that um, they believe that the USL championship and USL league one can come back and play soccer in their communities and they can do it in a way that um, hopefully helps these clubs be part of the healing process to some extent. So, I mean, again, you going from the forward Madison perspective, um, I mean, it's not a, it's not, uh, hidden to anybody that, you know, we can't play at Bree Stevens basically right. under the current guidelines in, in Dane County can't even fully practice, um, as a club, I think under the current guidelines. Um, so maybe just talk us through a couple of things, you know, being a, a league that's very pretty much, you know, or very heavily driven by game day revenue rather than TV. Um, I mean, sponsorship revenue obviously is a piece of it, but game day revenue being a huge piece of the puzzle, um, you know, how are, is there any plan in place to help clubs that might need to play for forward just, Madison be, you know, be clear. We're a fashion company with, with a soccer team attached. <laughs> that is true. That is true. We are relying heavily on our, on our uh, merchandise sales right now. But um, so one, um, is there any, how do teams kind of maybe get helped if they're going to be playing more road games, added costs, not getting gate receipts. And then two, uh, three, who, who, how are the, um, testing protocols being covered? Is that being covered by the clubs? Is the league helping out? So I have to be a little bit careful here, to be honest, because I, it's, it's really important that I don't um, disclose individual club financially. Sure. Right. So, um, but to answer your question in, in the most honest way I, I possibly can, I can tell you that the club has put forth an economic relief package for clubs across the championship in league one. And, and while I can't really get into the details on the areas that that relief package covers. Um, there is health and wellness elements to it. So the league is contributing costs towards um, some of the increase in, um, in expenditures for the clubs to make sure that their environments are being well looked after and that the players are being well looked after from a health and wellness standpoint. But the reality is, and, and it's at the very core of your question, Dan, is that um, USL teams, Madison a little bit less so because of the amount of jerseys you guys sell, but USL teams as a whole uh, are tremendously reliant on game day revenue. And so COVID-19 has brought with it serious economic hardship for clubs. Um, and, and it's been really difficult for, for a lot of teams across our league. And we just have to be honest about that. You can't sugarcoat it. Every industry in the world is struggling right now. Professional soccer is, is no different. Um, and so people are hurting a little bit and, and the league is, is I think doing its part to, to try to cover for some of that, that, um, economic hardship, but it's going to be a difficult year for, for a lot of teams. Now, um, the clubs, and I think this is important for, for people, the, the decision to return to play was not a, a league one, right? Um, that was the decision that the clubs undertook. And they said, 
we want to come back and we want to play soccer. We don't want to do it in a hub model like some of the other leagues are doing. And we want to, we want to bring soccer back to our communities. And if we have to, in certain cases, play um, behind closed doors or, or in limited capacity settings to do that, that's, that's a pill we're willing to swallow because it's, it's important to us that we play. Um, and, and the players were aligned with that as well from the beginning. Um, that was the one thing that everyone agreed on is that if we could play, people wanted to play and, and the players had a voice and the, the policies and the protocols and they ultimately signed off on them, um, you know, with the belief that, that they're robust enough to provide for everyone's health and wellness. So you have owners that are committed to playing, you have players that want to play and you have a league that's, that's, I think, um, doing its part to, to help offset some of the economic hardship the clubs are facing. And, and ultimately it's probably those three things more than anything that's led us to where we are today. Um, one, one final thing, is there anything in place? I know player safety, is there, are there considerations put in place for fan safety in terms of, you know, requests league wide for, you know, kind of a step above local guidelines. I mean, one of the, the troubles with this uh, sort of pandemic is each locality uh, has its own, you know, rules and, and regulations and, you know, it's, it's kind of turned into the wild West, which is not, or ideal. no rules and regulations. Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ryan's, Ryan's current home state of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could, we could bring up the uh, Palm beach County, uh, uh, meeting the other day about masks. Um, sorry, Ryan, had to, got to pick on Florida. Although Wisconsin, Wisconsin's a pretty much a dumpster fire these days too. So yeah. uh, here in Dane County is one thing, but you go 45 minutes away, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I forgot. Did you just want to use the term dumpster fire, Dan? And he's frozen. <laughs> uh, no, uh, just sort of for fan safety, are there any precautions? The league is, you know, are there going to be recommendations for uh, masks on fans, social distancing and fans? Are there any of those sorts of considerations at play yeah, um, being left yeah. up to, to local uh, supporters or local owners? Yeah, no, for sure. The um, if for anyone who's listening to this, I would I would recommend that everyone take um, a few minutes. It's dense reading, but the the policies and and the protocols that live on the USL League One website actually there's a an entire section of it that's dedicated to um, uh, best practices or minimum standards to make sure that that fans who are allowed in venues are are doing so in a in a safe and healthy way. Things like egress and ingress, the way that people come. In, in and out of the building. Um, that's a big part of it, right? Because you have to maintain some form of, of some semblance of social distancing while you're in there, which is counterintuitive to one's um, sort of pre-existing notion of what a, a, a soccer environment is. Um, so it's going to look and it's going to feel different for people. Um, and then there's some other things about, you know, PPE and, and the way that people will interact with the game itself. But um, look, the these policies were written by people again that, that are far more intelligent than I would. So I would go and read their, their policy language um, firsthand because it's uh, it'll be articulated in a way that, that I just, I wouldn't be able to do justice to. Uh, Dan Ryan has clearly not listened to the podcast and doesn't realize we don't do any preparation or research <laughs> before we go into this. We're just, that, that is uh, untrue. This, this, that is untrue this week. Cause I actually, I want to, I want to offer a, a, a thank you to Ryan. I took a quick look at his uh, Twitter page um, he, he made it clear that he is not a Liverpool supporter, but he did hype the video that, uh, Liverpool released 
the, the, the video of Klopp kind of talking over and then it ending. I mean, I've watched people keep sending me that video and I'm like, okay, I watched it like 46 times on Thursday. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was beautiful. That was beautiful. The, um, you know, look, the, the one thing about Liverpool that I'll say again, not a fan. I want to be very, I gotta be clear about that. Like not, <laughs> like not a fan, but they have, they've built an identity and a culture and an ethos around that club that um, I think any soccer team in the world should aspire to. And it's something that um, helps when you've been around for 150 years, right? You've got some time to let mm-hmm. that thing marinate and settle in a little bit. But I think that is, it's that idea. Like how do you get to that point that makes USL so fun and so cool to be a part of right now? And, and you guys are on kind of the cutting edge of this with Madison. You get to, have professional soccer come to your community for the very first time. And then you get to be a direct influence in what that club looks, feels and acts like going forward. Because the way that Madison is today, there's, there's elements of this culture that will exist in perpetuity. Um, and that's a, that's a really special thing. And it, that those elements are dictated by the initial set of supporters. Um, so somewhere a long time ago, people decided what, Liverpool football club was going to stand for and that's who it is today. And that's what you guys are getting to do in Madison. And that's what other supporters are getting to do across the country. And I, um, I just think that's a really kind of fun and and special idea. Well, and, and so Ryan, we want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for answering our questions. Um, and, uh, that's actually why our next guest is here. Uh, Kyle Carr is kind of serving as a, as a Trojan horse today, uh, in that we're bringing him in to recap the, the telethon we did yesterday, theoretically. Uh, but really we're just going to ramble about, uh, Liverpool for the next 25 minutes or so. So, um, at this point, uh, we're going to warn our listeners that that's where we're going to go. Uh, but we wanted to thank you, Ryan, for joining us today and we'll we'll let you go and uh hopefully we can have you on again in the future maybe when we get back to the get back to the things being a little more normal and we can talk about the product on the pitch and and the fun stuff i would love that i would love that can i ask kyle a quick question is that okay sure thing i'll let me unmute kyle here kyle man so my my wife and i we just had our second um we have a a two-year-old how how old is how old your uh your little one there he just turned six months last Thursday. So I, you getting any sleep? I actually am. He's pretty good at sleeping through the night. So I'm lucky in that regards. All right, cool. You got, does he have any Madison swag yet or not? Not yet. Not All yet. Right. Well, actually let me change that. He does have a scarf that has his name on it. So that's when the season ticket holders, you can choose to put your name or someone else's name. So I was able to get his name on it. So that is his one piece of Madison swag. That's cool. That's cool. Sorry. I'm in like in the trenches in dad mode right now. <laughs> well, you, you should file see your fellow dad. I'm like, I got questions. Like we got to talk about right now. <laughs> you should follow uh, Kyle on, on Twitter, uh, Kyle Coche, because he's already dropping some world-class dad jokes. So oh, I'm in. I'm in. Kyle, what's the handle? How do I follow you? As Keith said, so it's just Kyle Coche, um, C-O-C-H-E, made it as complicated yet straight to the point as possible <laughs> i'm on it i'm on it. hey guys thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate yeah, thanks, it ryan. thanks ryan yeah, good luck thanks. yeah good luck good luck with being a dad man i wish you thank that. you so kyle what we did want to focus on here uh you know thanks for the the dad chat uh and we had you on on mute there for a little bit because you joined us sort of part way through the interview so hopefully that wasn't too awkward for you uh you got to spend some <laughs> 
quality time with the, with the kid. Um, wanted to, I thought we were getting, we were getting Zumba. Um, <laughs> um, wanted to just get a, a quick, uh, update from you on what all transpired with the, you know, with the, the telethon, um, Dan and I did lose, uh, which I'm very bitter about, um, to Eric and Brandon Eaton, uh, the tomato and Brandon Eaton. And, uh, you know, that's really on us. Um, well, I mean, I think, I think, I think, uh, Jandershan, um, the, I was, the rules were very confusing is, on this. Uh, I will say no one really won. You guys just lost. <laughs> that was kind of how I would say. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's, how I that's kind of how I described listeners of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, hashtag better without audio. Uh, and, uh, Kyle, uh, what all, what all transpired? I mean, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed watching you guys interview, uh, you know, the folks from For the Culture talk a little bit about kid history that the plastics were on, uh, heard the, the Cooligans, um, you know, a lot of great talent. How did it all work out for the charities in question and, and all yeah. that? I think it went overall uh, success within the two and a half hours that we were streaming. We were able to get over eleven hundred dollars, which considering how many charities we had and the variety of charities, because most of our guests had a charity that they wanted to promote. So when we had the Cooligans, they wanted to promote the Victory Fund, uh, which was kind of helping out politicians, you know, just give them a platform and try and give them as much support as they can for their campaigns. Um, when we had the Plastics, they had Reclaim, which, you know, that's kind of a more focusing on the LGBTQ community, especially communities of color. Um, when we had For the Culture, they wanted to promote All Stripes, which is a SG for those in that area. So with the LGBTQ people that identify as that. So it's really cool that we were able to get $1,100 within two and a half hours. And that's only increased since then. I think last I saw, we were at least over 1,500. Um, so that was a really cool feeling knowing that we didn't really have a number that we were saying, this is our goal. This is the money we wanted to fundraise. But just every time I would look at my phone, it was a new email would pop up saying so-and-so donated, so-and-so donated to, you know, whether it's G-Safe or any of the other um, charities that our guests wanted to promote. I think it's really cool that we were able to have not just flock people make donations, but there are people, you know, over in New York, people down in Florida, people in California. And I think that was kind of the biggest takeaway for me is, this wasn't necessarily, uh, I mean, it was the flock hosting it and the flock hosting the telethon, but it really was a U.S. soccer community-based project and based fundraiser, um, just with how we were able to get everything going. And all the guests that we had were fantastic, you two included. Um, it really just made it fun. And, you know, I think to show, I think it was also showing what we could do in the future as well. Um you know, with the quality of guests that we had, with the quality of segments that we had. I mean, it was really six people kind of working in one space trying to put it all together. So I mean really four. It was it was you, you, Omar, Sarah, Scott, Sarah Griffin, uh, Kelly Ferguson, and then those other two guys just kept showing up at the meetings, right? Grant they, they were they were there, they were present, yeah. you know, still Joffrey, needed Joffrey Slanderson. Hey, he edited a lot of the pre-recorded videos, which is something that I would not want to do and something I'm not great at. So I will let him have the credit for that. So, but I mean, no, and, and it was a lot of, of just the power that we have. And, and uh, now Dan and I didn't watch to the end um, because we both pretend to have lives. Did, did Turbo actually figure out what was going on in the burger? Turbo? 
Pearl did pretty well, all things considered. He got the main meat, which was lamb, so that was good <laughs> on him. He, he pickled the onions for how short of a time he had. It was it tasted really good. I will say Turbo's lamb and how he cooked it was better than Rubinia's. I will say that, oh, and I said oh, that on boy. the street. Fighting words. Fighting he words. did get the two flavors mixed up because I think in his he put orange as his citrus based pickled onions, and then in Rubinia's it was uh, more of a lemon. Um, but a lot of the things that he got different than Rubinia's were very small, and overall he did pretty well. I would, I was very impressed with how Turbo's burger turned out. So, so much like at uh, at like. Uh at County St- not Miller Park, do you think we're going to get like Turbo's Grill in the future at Bree Stevens? When Turbo's playing days are over, I would not be surprised if he decided to venture into having his own cooking show that is going to be regularly hosted on Ford Madison's Twitch channel in the future. We might have to beat we might have to beat the club to it, but I, I can see Turbo having that kind of career. <laughs> I would say for me, the, the biggest success or the biggest failure is that I now have a Twitch account. I, I can't, I still haven't decided whether I'm happy or sad about that. Uh, like, I don't know what, like, this is the first time I've ever seen Twitch used for good. Usually I thought it was just like racist, homophobic teenagers, you know, shouting slurs. That's the only time I've ever seen Twitch in the news. I know that's not the case, but that's the only time you ever see Twitch. It's like, you know, somebody did something stupid on their Twitch stream. I, yeah, I do have a Twitch account. It was funny because Andrew decided to follow my account. I was like, I'm not going to post videos. Like, I don't do the streaming stuff. I mainly have it for this telethon. That's it. <laughs> this is the point where we're going to tell Andrew not to continue listening uh, because for the next 15, 20 minutes, uh, we are going to violate every rule that Andrew holds, holds dear. And we are going to be just totally insufferable and talk about Liverpool. So if you don't want to listen to three dudes talk about Liverpool and be insufferable, we've warned you, tune out out now. We are not responsible for anything that happens in the next 15 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe three hours. This may be a four-hour podcast. We'll see what happens. We may just sit here reveling in the Liverpool victory for the next several hours. Um, And to start off with, I want to get this out of the way uh, very carefully. Uh, I mentioned, you know, on uh, our group chat, Kyle, that I was alive for the last time Liverpool won the title. (laughs) And Kyle mentioned that he was not yet 30. So just to to repeat for everyone, fuck you, Kyle. (laughs) Uh, But I believe I I hearted that comment yeah um not, not the part about kyle being under 30 the part where keith told him to fuck off I didn't yeah i was definitely the youngest in this chat so when i <laughs> threw that out there i'm pretty sure everyone just sent a middle finger emoji or would have sent a middle finger emoji to me but but you know uh dan and i can talk about this but what got you into liverpool and what is you know this title mean now and then we can also you know if you just want to sing your love songs to sadio mane we'll give you some time to do that as well so I would say the biggest, there are a couple of contributing factors. One being a rebellion on stage against my dad, who is a Man United fan. So that was the first indication of, yeah, I should really go with this club in Liverpool. Um, otherwise, the first main season that we had Fox Soccer was the 2008-2009 season. And that really, for me, was kind of just watching a prime Gerard and Torres just run all over and score goals left and right. 
And then you still have Javi Alonso just able to just ping a pass 40 yards downfield. And it's like, this seems really fun to watch. This seems really exciting. So that was kind of the two main starting points. And then when I would play FIFA's, that would Liverpool would be the team I would pick. Um, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew to the point that, I mean, if I would say I've been a valiant Liverpool supporter for the last, what, 11 years now, 11, 12 years. So with this title, I, it, for me, it was kind of, it's kind of important just because out of all the teams, I would say Liverpool is second behind the box in terms of how much I have emotionally invested into them, whether it's spending two hours on a Wednesday trying to watch a Champions League match or even on Thursdays watching Europa League. It's wishing that... A lot of time watching the Europa League. Yeah, a lot of Europa Leagues there. I remember one time I left work uh, in the middle of the day so I can get down to Brits Pub in Minneapolis to watch the 2016 Europa League final. And after that match ended, I was like, I really decided to leave work for this. <laughs> Good choices, Kyle. Good choices. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, but that's for me, that's kind of how it is. It's just more in terms of how much I've invested that it means a lot to see them finally. And again, I haven't been alive since the last title. And even then I didn't watch a lot of the heartbreaks in the 90s team Manchester United win all the time. And then I wasn't really, you know, watched during the 2000, 2001 season when they came in second, but still pulled off a treble. So then that first season, the 08, 09, it's like, oh, this team is really good and they're going to compete. And that's just something that I had always assumed would happen. And that clearly was not the case the next year. And then things just got worse and worse. And then, you know, there's some positives in 2011, 2012, when they win a league cup and make the FA cup final, knocking out everything in the process. But it really didn't dawn on me until I did more and more research and I did more readings and you look at 13, 14 and honestly that team should not have been close to winning a title. And yet it was kind of the same thing as 08, 09. It's like this attack is so good and it's just so memorizing to watch. So for me, that's kind of how I got involved in with this title in particular. One, it can rub it in everyone's face, which is always a great time for me. <laughs> which is what we're doing here. <laughs> because out of all the teams, like <laughs> out of most sports teams I support, only the Packers have won the Super Bowl, like won a title. And I guess the Melbourne victory, but I can't really brag about that to anyone because no one cares about Australian <laughs> soccer as much. <laughs> so that's kind of Mar- Maritimo is your other club that I discovered you have today. Uh, I got six teams. <laughs> yeah. How did you get into Maritimo? So when I was in Portugal for my honeymoon, we were on Madeira Island, which tiny little island off the coast of Portugal, kind of closer to Africa than it is Portugal. And one time we were at the bar and I was kind of asking, okay, well, who's the local club over here? Like, I don't know. I know a little bit about Portuguese soccer, but I really only knew Benfica, Porto, um, Sporting, and Braga. Those are like the only four teams. So then I'm asking, okay, who's, this, who's the teams over here? And they're like, well, there's Nacional, where Cristiano Ronaldo was. There's, you know, another club. And then there's this one Maritima. And I was like, okay, tell me more about these. Like, which one would you say I support? And the bartender's like, I mean, it depends on if you want to go with the white collar, preppy, rich people, which is Nacional. Or you can go with the working class one, which is Maritima. I was like, okay, I'm probably going to go with the working class one. <laughs> Next day, we go to Funchal where the stadium is walk past that going to the team store. I'm just looking around. I was like, okay, I like the red and green combo. I like the badge. The kits were awesome. I was like, okay, this is my team. Problem <laughs> solved. Let's go to a match. I find out later that weekend, um, they were away. So I didn't get to watch a home match, but at the same bar that I asked, he said, well, we're going to have the match on Sunday afternoon. 
So just come back here around 4 p.m. We'll have the match on. And I went back, watched it. They won 1-0, and it was a good time. So ever since then, that has been how I've gotten connected to Mari Timo. <laughs> uh, uh, Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about your your love of Liverpool? Get get this out. Or am I going to weep? Is Kyle going to weep? Are we going to be weeping by the end of this podcast? Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe not. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've told the story before, and I might the the dates, you know, might be a little kind of fuzzy because of how old I was, but. Uh, as a young ruffian living in Canton, Ohio, we've already covered the Canton invaders on other episodes of the pod. Um, you know, I was, I was a sports nut. Uh, I was probably more of a baseball fan um, earlier in my life, but I was a huge soccer player, um, loved soccer. And um, I also used to get up very, very early in the morning. Uh, I was the young, I'm the youngest in my family. There's a big gap between me and my brother and sister. It's about seven and eight years. So um they were teenagers and I would, I would wake up and my mom would just be like, just go downstairs and watch television. And this would be, this would have been about 1990, 1987, 88, 89, somewhere in that range. Um, ESPN was still a very new station at that time. And they used to show what I now think was probably match of the day or some sort of version of match of the day. Uh, and also Aussie rules football. So I would go down at about six o'clock in the morning. I think the first episode of sports center usually came on at like seven or seven thirty. And so I watched a lot of Aussie rules football and a lot of soccer. Uh, and I think at that point, this is Liverpool's kind of the end of their period of dominance. Um, and they were on every weekend. I remember the red kits. I remember the candy. Um, and I was just like, that's my team. Um, and so as a kid, and then, you know, when FIFA came out, I would play with Liverpool um, but to be honest, you know, from that, from about 1988 until I would say even into the 90s, late nineties, I was still like, Oh yeah, that's my team. If I saw the champions league on, I would watch it, but I wasn't like a diehard. I was still playing all the time, but I wasn't watching all the time and I wasn't kind of invested. And, well, it was really- and back in the dark ages, I mean, literally, you know, here in Madison, it was like, did we get, it was sports channel America that used to run the match of the day and yeah. it didn't have like, Sometime the cable system would pick it up for six months and then they drop it and, and your soccer coverage would just disappear. Yeah. And so it was like, you know, could you even watch it? I mean, I subscribed to soccer America and you would get the results from England, but it'd be like a week later in print, you know, um, yeah. makes and it you know, a lot harder to follow a team with the same sort of devotion in some sense. Yeah. And my club coach who I've talked about, Paul Riley, who now coaches the North Carolina courage, he played in the Liverpool youth system. So when he was training us, we talked a lot about Liverpool, but again, like I did, you know, I knew Ian Rush, I knew John Barnes, I knew Stan Collymore, I knew some of these players, but it wasn't like, you know, so anyway, fast forward, really the 2002 world cup. Um, and at this point, my brother had become a very big Arsenal fan. He had gone to work, he had gone to London a lot for work and become a big Arsenal fan. And then the 2002 World Cup, I just graduated from college, watched a lot, basically didn't work for three weeks and just watched, lived in New York, watched matches and was like, I really want this to be a part of my life. Like I want, I met people from all over the world. I learned a lot about football and I was like, I really, so I just wanted this to be part of my kind of day-to-day existence. And so I kind of really rededicated myself to be like, well, I'm a Liverpool supporter um, and I've always been and I'm not going to jump. I'm not going to some other club. So really since about 2002, um, I mean, it, th- this has been it. And, um, I, I've, I've stopped watching football. I kind of lost my interest in baseball. Um, I liked 
there was something about the fact that it was my team too. It wasn't like I inherited this from like, I think, you know, Kyle, this wasn't as much of like, I'm going to pick the team my dad doesn't support, but I, I think that it kind of fit my personality to find a club that I cared about for the reasons I wanted to care about it. And luckily as, as Ryan mentioned in the last segment, I mean, a lot of their politics kind of lined up and the city kind of lined up in a lot of ways with um, what I believed in. Um, and it's, and uh, yeah, and I've made friends uh, or acquaintances as it were with uh, Keith, friends with Kyle, acquaintances with Keith. Um, that wouldn't have happened without this club. And it's just been, I, you know, and on Thursday, I, there have there been a lot of days I never thought I would see this. I mean, I guess realistically, I figured I would at least see it once in my life. I mean, just if Lester's going to fucking win it, like <laughs> there had to be a time we were going to maybe win it. But I mean, I was, I don't think I was prepared for um, like how emotional I was on Thursday about it. And I will say the moment that really got me was seeing uh, Jurgen Klopp just in tears on the sky sports interview. I mean, a guy who's only been there for five years and just totally understands. I mean, that you couldn't have created a better manager for that club. Um, and I feel very, very proud and lucky to have him uh, manage our club. And I actually think he's a wonderful human being beyond being a wonderful football manager. I think he's, uh, there's a lot to learn from that guy in terms of how to live your life and treat other people. So um, happy days. Keith, how did you get into the club? Uh, yeah. You know, in the late eighties, um, one of my first, you know, memories of it. Uh, and, and, you know, we've talked about this is watching the, like you said, it must've been match of the day on, on sports channel and kind of dipping in all year. And it's like Liverpool is going to win the title and then they lose two nothing at home uh, to Michael Thomas scoring, you know, and it's like, well, wait, how did they lose a whole year and they lost on goal difference? This doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, it was always something in the background. Like I said, it was hard to follow a team with the intensity that you did. Um, and then hard as well for me, I just, you know, in my, in my twenties, I was never in the United States as much. Um, and you know, I lived in Spain, so I got into La Liga at that point, you know, watch that was in France and watch a lot of French football, you know, would watch champions league with folks. And, and, you know, you, you, I'd be more acute to Liverpool, but, um, then, you know, about 10 years ago, I was living in New York and, you know, got back into soccer, uh, maybe a little longer than that, maybe 12 years ago now, and just started, you know, going to the, the it got easier to watch Liverpool. And then, you know, in, in 2010, you know, I just, it kept picking up and, and, you know, I watched the Champions League final and, uh, you know, in 05, but I don't think I was at the same level of supporter. And then that 13, 14 year happened. And, and um, you know, that year in my personal life was, was not one of the best. Um, I moved back to Madison, kind of left academia at that point, broke up with a, a girlfriend at that point, And like it, it created this, you know, uh, Bob Dylan has the lyric, those who suffer together are, are have tighter bonds than those who are most content. That year was me sort of suffering down the line with Liverpool. I mean, I was hanging my whole week on the matches because everything else in my life had gone to shit basically. And, um, you know, that, that it was one of those things where I, like Kyle said, I didn't think they were going to win the title. There's no way they were going to win the title. I mean, they had major contributions from Ali Sissoko, uh, <laughs> you know, John Flanagan and Ali Sissoko, John, John Flanagan, the, 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 you know, red Cafu, um, and John Flanagan's mall, 
Um, you know, if you thought that team was going to win, but you know, Luis Suarez was just, and it was like, you couldn't help get despite yourself. You ended up thinking that team was going to win. And, you know, this year, the moment when Liverpool fans said, now you're going to believe us. Now you're going to believe us was as big as winning the title, because it was like, finally, like I started believing in, in the, you know, I just, I'd given up on us, even with Klopp. I was like, we have the, the tools in place, but it's, you know, last year when we had 97 points. And so when they finally won it this year, it was, it was, I still don't believe it. Honestly, I, like, I feel like somebody's going to come in and take it away. Um, and, and just the whole, you know, social distance nature of this celebration, uh, Kub and I cheated and went and had a beer together with, with our friend Luke at, at, at a bar. Um, but like the whole socially distanced aspect of it, it just doesn't quite feel real in the same way. Um, but it, 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 you know, it, it I, I, yeah, I, I just don't know what to say. Like it, it, you know, and, and part of it is it's a restoration. Like I always thought Europe, you know, Liverpool was the greatest club. And, you know, when I was growing up, they were the greatest club. You didn't think we were going to go through 30 years of this. And now that they're back, it's, it's this relief, this, you know, we're going to be insufferable about it because this is where Liverpool is the greatest club in the world. And not just because they're the most successful club. Um, you know, and, and Manchester United sucks, um, you know, <laughs> and not you know, just, and there's, there's one thing, I, you know, I wanted to point out, and I think we talked about this last year. I don't know about probably not on the podcast, but, um, we spent the last day of last season. I think you were there, Keith, right at, at the nomad, the old nomad, um, where all the matches were kicking off at once. And, and there was a certain club from North London, who, uh, whose supporters can be a little difficult at it, times. It rhymes with Rottenham Rotspurs, yes. <laughs> but um, listen, and I get it. it, it's tribal, and they wanted to, like, you know, we were there, City don't have a supporters group in Madison, so it was easier to make fun of us. But, like, what I, you know, what I want to say to other clubs is, like, it's actually possible to do this without having an owner who's going to spend $9 billion of ill-begotten oil money. Now I'm not saying uh, the Fenway sports group or angels or anything, but the way they run the club is in a sustainable way. And yes, we have spent a lot of money, but we've also made a lot of money on selling players. And I think what I like about this is that this does give other teams a blueprint for how to go about winning the league. Now, Yes, we have Klopp, and yes, we hit the lottery on a lot of these signings. This was done in a very kind of, and they've learned lessons along the way, but I just think this opens up the opportunity for clubs to really not just be like, oh, we can get into the top four and maybe have a run at the title every once in a while, but there's a real possibility for club. I mean, Liverpool were almost bankrupt when this when these owners took over 10 years right, ago. That's I mean, kind of the weird thing, because like I said, for me, after the 08... Oh, nine season. I'm like, yeah, they're going to be fine. And then that's when everything was going to shit is that's when they nearly go bankrupt. It's when they're in the relegation zone and get knocked down in the league cup early by, you know, league two team. And that it's kind of weird that 10 years ago, this club could have been another Rangers and now eventually like a Bolton or Bury where they could have completely fallen off the earth. And yet, you know, you have this new ownership group come in 
And yeah, they made a lot of missteps along the way. They made a lot of, a lot of missteps in the recruiting, but I think that that's more on them learning from their mistakes and putting the right people in charge, whether it's Klopp or Michael Edwards, because you look at a club like Barcelona and they've spent nearly a billion dollars in the last five, six years. And really they had none of those signings have really panned out. Like their last good signing was Lee Suarez and Tristegen back in 2014. But since then, nothing's worked out for them. And then you kind of look at the opposite. And even within England, you have Manchester United. They're throwing all this money at guys like Fred, at guys like, you know, they have so many players that they spent money on that didn't justify it. And they haven't lived up to it. And even, you know, Chelsea would sometimes get away with it at times because they had someone like Eden Hazard that can bail them out. And now you look currently with Jurgen Klopp and yes, they spent a lot of money on Van Dyke, but that's what you're going to, and this is before Maguire's on. Now you're looking at the best center back in the world, not even being the highest transfer fee. You look at Allison, who's probably the best goalkeeper in the world. And he was not, he didn't have the highest transfer fee, but it's more the guys like Andrew Robertson. You look at Trent, you look at Jeannie, you look at Mane. Those are guys that they weren't highly, highly recruited players that Klopp was able to take and decide, okay, I can make them, you know, this lethal combination. You look at Firmino, who was playing as wingback when Brendan was there, and Klopp's like, no, I'm going to make him a false nine. It's just, it, it takes such a good manager to recognize, I can do these things with these players, and I'm not going to just spend money because we have the capability of spending money. Yeah. Uh, Keith, do you have a, do you have a favorite storyline? that Like, does there anything like you're just like, gives you the biggest smile about this player manager. There are so many, I mean, like Virgil van Dyke, I think I texted this maybe to, to, or one of you individually. Um, Virgil van Dyke is so good. We've stopped talking about how good he is. He's like now a force, like, it's like, Oh, the, the sun, you know, rises in the East and sets in the West and Virgil van Dyke is fucking awesome. I mean, that's the conversation around Virgil van Dyke, but the guy, you know, you look at, you know, has not, you know, maybe people make a big deal out of him getting dribbled past. That's how good the guy is at this point. Right. He makes any of his partners at least somewhat better. Yeah. Uh, you know, even he struggles with Dehan Lovren. I think we'll agree there. Um, I also think Dehan is, you know, I think he's 30 on the page. I think in, in real years, he's about 48. I think he's lived some life. Um, and so I think he's much older, uh, but you know, Joe Gomez and, and Joel Matip, I mean, and Joel Matip, they signed for a free. I mean, let's, you know, let's remember that um, this, you know, everybody's like, Oh, they spent so much money. They got a guy like Matip who's really underrated as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, you know, the ad, the new balance ad where, you know, Trent Alexander Arnold is just a local boy made, made good, you know, uh, whose dreams have come true. Um, you know, that'll, now I'm, I'm going to start welling up um, because that's, you know, he, he talks about looking over the, you know, looking over the shrubs at, at Melwood um, and, you know, all these sort of powerful narratives. Um, it, it's hard for me. I, you know, my, I think my favorite player on the team, just because I think he's the engine and makes everything happen is Firmino. Um, I think he's, what he allows is the team to adjust mid match. Um, you know, they don't, they play a four, three, three theoretically. Right. But 
Firmino will drop in and be the tip of a diamond in a four four two. If if the midfield is getting overrun, he'll even drop deeper if the need you know need arises, so that they're in a four one three one or four three two. You know, if need be, um, you know he he creates those spaces and interacts with Mane and and Salah so well, and he's so I mean to be a number nine ish or false nine, a 10, whatever you want to call him and be that unselfish that he's content to let everything else happen around him. And he is so smart in terms of leading the press and, and getting the press. I mean, he's like, to my mind, my, you know, I don't know if he's my favorite. I don't know if I love him quite like you guys love your respective uh, crushes. Um, I will say if I had a wife, I would let her cheat on me with Virgil van Dyke. Um, I'm fine. With that. Um, that is a handsome, you know, just everything about him is like, I will follow, I will follow van Dyke wherever he goes. Him and Jesse Marsh. <laughs> yeah, him and Jesse Marsh. I will. And we should um, we should congratulate Jesse Marsh on a on a league and cup double in Austria mm-hmm. as of uh, I think last evening. So congratulations to him. And another congratulations to a manager I did not know. Uh, yeah, the one in Stuttgart. Yeah, yeah, an, an American-born New Jersey uh, guy who took who's taken Stuttgart from. Uh, second division to the Bundesliga. So uh, I don't, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but um, good, good news on the American front. But I did want to say, um, I, 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 yes. So my, my celebrity crush, which we were not asked on the newlywed game the other day is, is none other than Jeannie Wijnaldum. Um, and, 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 but actually the player I want to talk about is kind of a, in a similar vein and that's Jordan Henderson. And that's because, you know, there's probably been times where he's driven me a little nuts. There's probably been times where I've been critical of him and haven't thought he was made that maybe we did need an upgrade on him or didn't think he was the right player for us or could we win championships with him? But, but a guy like that who was just was given the opportunity to leave the club um, when we tried to sign Clint Dempsey, which now seems completely insane. Um, But, you know, was like, no, this is where I want to be. And this is, you know, and has worked so hard. And even with Klopp, he's been moved around from position to position. But it, but it's, it, he to see a player like that, who now has lifted four trophies in the last 13 months, who's gotten so much stick from outside the club, inside the club, from the supporters. It's my, it, it, he's like my, I was a huge fan of Lucas because I always thought Lucas Leva for those two seasons and a couple of the dark years, I thought he really was like basically the only thing that was keeping us from losing matches like nine, nothing. I think he was the best holding midfielder in the world for about 18 months before he blew out his knee against Chelsea, um, but never got the credit he deserved. And I just, to see Jordan Henderson. And again, and it was one of the interviews the other day where they said, how does this feel? And he kind of, or they asked, how does it feel to be a Premier league winner, champions league winner, club world cup winner. And, FIFA super cup winner. And he just kind of smirked and he said, pretty good. And, you know, you could just, you could just see like, he was basically like to all of those people, fuck you. Like nobody thought I I could do this and I'm going to go down in history as one of the greatest captains to ever captain this club. And um, I just have a ton ton of respect for players like that. It's kind of weird because in that 13-14 season, you could argue that him getting yeah. sent off against City yes. and suspended is really when things went off the rails for them. I and agree. Yeah. It's like we completely forget about that because in the next couple of seasons, he's hurt. You know, he's had a lot of injuries. It, even going into the seven, like last, not the 18-19 season going in, I was like, I don't think in the in a best starting 11, 
he's in that starting lineup in the midfield. You know, Fabinho's starting to come good. Nabby was starting, like Nabby's coming in. You still have Genie. You have Ox. And it's like, you've had four midfielders. And I'm like, I don't know if Henderson's going to make it. And now I think it's, I couldn't picture the starting lineup without Henderson. And you even saw when he was hurt this year, that's when we'll have their worst run, you know, losing Atletico, losing to Chelsea, yep. Watford. And, you know, if he's healthy, they probably win. At least they win against Chelsea and they maybe win against Atletico. I don't know about Watford because that was just, everything just went badly. So yeah. maybe they that one. But that was some game in, in like uh, in, in uh, Super Tecmo Bowl where the computer just decides you're going to lose it. You can't go undefeated. That's yeah. it. I'm, that match. I'm pretty sure it's because that guy from Kansas City came into the Nomad. Uh, That's yeah. why we got a match. Yeah. It yeah. could be. Well, also, Keith stopped drinking at that point. That is true. <laughs> that, is, that is entirely on me, and I, I blame myself. Um, I did, you know, finally uh, get good and drunk this weekend to celebrate. And, <laughs> you know, spent, spent most of Sunday in bed. Uh, so uh, I, I'm back to midseason form, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Kyle, I, I did want to, well, I, I'm curious about this, you know, uh, why I think there are a lot of obvious reasons, but, you know, in particular, and we can talk about Dan's love of Ginny's Ginny's hindquarters. I think really it's his butt that that and how he uses it on the field because Dan, you know, was a uh, really a guy with a large hindquarters um, on, on the pitch. But uh, why Sadio Mane? What, what's you know what's so great about Sadio for you? From day one when he signed with Liverpool, you could just see how good he was, and it was that whole first season he was the best player. And while I was watching, I was like. I don't know why, but every time he had the ball, I just could not turn away. It's like, he's going to do something. He's going to win. He's going to win matches. He's going, he's just so entertaining. He's someone that I couldn't take my eyes off of. It's kind of like how people talk about with Messi or Mbappe. So once they have the ball, you don't know what's going to happen. That was kind of the thing with Mane. And as Mane is like a, as a, as a, he's like Suarez without all the, all the evil. Without the racism and biting, the the cheating. And even Mane a little bit every once in a while with a little embellishment, but he, he's all, I think I agree. He's always in the action. He's always in the action. And then he's just a great person. You know, he's over here building hospitals in his hometown. He's over here getting schools. He's always, he's always so humble because even on the social media, it's still very like mellow. He's, he's just a very down to earth person. I think that's just because that's someone that he knew his upbringing, you know, not having boots, having to just sneak away from his parents to go to this football Academy in his home country of Senegal to try and make it. And even when he gets overseas to France at Mets, he has an injury and then he's doubting if he's going to be able to make it. And he's freezing his ass off because he's like used to France weather. And, <laughs> It's just one of those where it's like he's always been so humble and he's always known who he was. And also just to have someone that good in a Liverpool jersey that looks like me. And those are like some of the biggest things because, you know, going into that season, the best players probably Coutinho. And even before then, you still had Suarez. And then before then, you have Gerrard. And really, there hasn't been a black Liverpool player that's been that good since John Bart, someone I was not able to really watch growing up. So for me, it's kind of like, that's that guy. And I mean, now they have a couple of those guys where whether it's Genie, whether it is Virgil van Dyke or Trent or Mane, or hopefully, you know, Nabby and Origi, you know, they still have most of those players, but really at that time, it, that was a guy. And that was that 
black football player that I saw. I was like, Hey, that looks like me. That looks like someone that's being successful. And that's someone that on a club that I support. And we, you know, not to, and in the interest of full disclosure, Liverpool has had a less than stellar history with, with black players. It was kind of late to the game and the city of, you know, while I talk a lot about the, the kind of the values of the club, that's an area they have had to work a lot on. And the Suarez incident being, I think a pretty ugly moment that again we, we've mentioned though the owners i think that thing started to get out of hand and somebody made a call across the ocean and said this needs to stop like now and they stepped in and i think you know they made some horrible mistakes at first but um but yeah i, I mean sadio is just uh and that his his ever-growing head is just amazing i mean the guy it's just incredible to watch a gr- it's like <laughs> I, I i just love it um and yeah, and then you think of that Simpsons episode, don't you? Yeah, it's like the Simpsons episode with the tonic. Um, that hair was once they got out of lockdown, and his hair was like that. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, Dario can help you with your familial rebellion as well because didn't he put the stripe in his hair because it angered his mother? I think if I remember yep. correctly. Um, and well, that's the fact that he wanted to be a professional footballer and not go to school was always something that annoyed his family. So. I can support that. Yeah. <laughs> a point of contention. Um, Wait, do I get to talk about Jenny? Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, we're, the most handsome man Ginny. on the team. Well, <laughs> but I was going to say on a team of so many guys who I think that whole front line they just they're so joyous somehow even sadio sadio just like stands out like he's like a light on the field i don't know how else how else to put it maybe it's because he's so dangerous with the ball at his feet and he just does things like that goal against Bayern munich like i'm still trying to figure out how he did that um from a technical intelligence spatial awareness you know how how do you have that awareness and skill to do that um with the football and so you know when uh, and Sala is fun to watch. I mean, he's just a fun player, you know, and Firmino yeah. with the no look finishes. And yet somehow even compared to them, you know, Sadio Mane seems even more joyous. I don't know how to describe it, you know, but let's talk about Ginny. Well, and, and the Ginny thing kind of goes, it, it's similar to the Hendo thing in that he, a player who I just don't think most people out there have the, I'm just going to say it, don't have the intelligence to appreciate um, mostly people from outside of our club who don't get to watch him play every week. Um, and I don't say this to, to demean him as a player, but you need water carriers. You can't have 11 players who want the ball all the time and want to be the guy to score the goal and want to be the guy to do everything. You need players that win the ball every time, never lose it and get it to the best players on the pitch. And Ginny Wijnaldum, it is uncanny his ability to cover ground, win the ball and never lose it. If you watch that guy shield people off the ball in tight quarters and get himself out and keep possession of the ball. I've never seen a player like that. I I've mentioned this before and I tried, I've tried to track the stat down again and I can't find it, but there's somebody out there who does a um, basically how long each player has the ball. Um, and a couple years ago, Frankie DeYoung at Ajax was, was like way out ahead. He was at like 2.7 seconds every time he touched the ball. And, the, you know, the idea being he's setting the tempo for the match. Second was Ginny Wijnaldum, and nobody was close to him in third place. And it just, now they're both Dutch, so that shows you how they teach players to play there. But I think it's just an incredible ability to kind of knit 
defense to attack um, and do it selflessly and then come up and score two goals against Barcelona at home in the Champions League when we don't have Firmino and Salah, which I think we should be reminding people all the fucking time that we scored four goals without Firmino and without Mohamed Salah against Barcelona in the Champions League. So, um, well, and that, like, I love you, Ginny. The, the <laughs> reference to Ginny's butt is that ability to shield people off the ball that he yeah. has is so yeah. incredible. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why a player like Henderson, a player like Ginny, and I also think to some extent, uh, you know, a player like Fabinho, um, Fabinho a little bit more, you know, people are starting to notice him in the six. But guys like that, and it's sort of shocking that Angola Conte gets as much credit as he does because he's another player like that. You need guys, and this is the, the role of the Liverpool midfield, is to be tactically disciplined, to hold the shape, to do the, thing, do the small things in terms of releasing pressure from Trent or Andy Robertson out wide, you know, give them that, that release, or also make sure that the, the, you know, Firmino, uh, Salah, Mane have that freedom to do what they want to do up top and also give them the proper support without losing position defensively and, and attacking. And I think, you know, a lot goes when, when you see the breakdowns of teams and you talk about somebody like Manchester City, the focus ends up on, oh, well, you know, the defenders or, you know, that's why they got broken. But in a lot of cases, in the case of City, they get stretched or, you know, they have two very high operating central midfielders. And that opens up that those spaces in a way that Liverpool never got exposed. And, you know, City take that risk and, and countered by, you know, tactical following their cheaters. Um, Liverpool <laughs> don't get caught out in that same way. They can hold that shape t- tighter because of Wijnaldum, because of Henderson and, and, Fabinho as well that they're you know and Milner was the same way right coming in and and really providing that structure holding that shape and so it's what's asked of them and I think it's you know people overlook that they think oh why aren't they why aren't we getting more goals from the midfield and it's like because you know Klopp doesn't want their job yeah right Um, if he does he throws ox on there and it's like all right go ahead and do your thing (laughs) yeah and and I think it's the advantage of having someone like ox and, you know, hopefully he stays healthy. You get that from Nabi Keita as well. These guys that can explode from the midfield. And so if you're playing against a team that's really compact now, you have that extra element. I think it's what Ox does really well. Or if the game's a little bit stretched, Ox is a great guy to throw in there and, and run in, in those spaces. So I think, yeah, it's, I just, you know, and, and I just love watching this team play. So uh, we're going to wrap up there because actually Dan has to go and do something and we, uh, uh, you know, uh, can't just keep rambling. I think this may have been our longest uh, podcast ever. Uh, (laughs) Usually to wrap up, we'll say forwards, not backwards, uh, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. But this week we'll say you'll never walk alone. We haven't had a no recording quite a while, so we're we're really up in the professional. <laughs> Have you guys done that where you did the interview? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, with he has. I don't know which way he is. Keith yeah. has. <laughs> coach Daryl Shore. We didn't record any of his audio one time. That was a lot. Oh, of brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Uh, right. 
really one of our best podcasts because it was, was it? <laughs> we're better without audio. Uh, that's really our secret. <laughs>